How's it going, New Hope? Great to see you. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors. Thanks for joining us for our online gathering. Uh, we're grateful for your investment of time. About 15 months ago, my family and I went to Disneyland. And it was our girls' first Disney experience. And as you can imagine, it was wonderful. Uh, got to ride the Incredicoaster, really enjoyed that. Our girls were a little shell-shocked, I think, by that. Uh, but our favorite uh, ride at Disneyland was Big uh, uh, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, I think it's called. I think there will be a picture that comes up. So if you go there a lot, you know what it is. I, I bet we rode that 15 or 20 times. I don't know why we loved it so much, but uh, we just really did. But we think back and have memories of the beignets and uh, searching through Tom Sawyer's Island and uh, at night, the fireworks, and as they say, Disney is the happiest place on earth, which is maybe true. It, it's certainly a happy place, and we have happy memories. There's one thing that that I, I hate about Disney, though. And can you guess it? What's the most annoying thing about trips to Disney? It is the waiting. The waiting. The majority of time you spend there, I don't care what you do, you spend the majority of time waiting in line. And I hate to wait. So I did a little research for myself, for you, if you go back to Disney. If you, like me, hate waiting, don't go on May 20th. That is the busiest day of the year. The average wait is 42 minutes in line. If, like me, you want to avoid the wait, go around January 22nd, where the wait is 7.6 minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the, the, the ride still that you have to wait the longest for is Space Mountain, about a 65-minute wait on average. When Guardians of the Galaxy came out in 2017, that month the wait for that ride was 2 hours and 56 minutes, which is mind-boggling. And some people waited 5 hours for a 2-minute ride. Woo! Uh, our family, we even waited in line for uh, It's a Small World. After all, they should pay you to go on that ride. I can't get that song out of my mind. We did discover, as most of you know that are veterans, uh, one way to help with the wait is, is get what they call the Disney uh, Fast Pass. And that's where you go to the machine and you get a ticket and they give you a time later in the day. And then when you have that ticket during that time frame, like two to three or three to four, you can go in the Fast Pass lane. And it's awesome, the Fast Pass lane, because the other lane is just everybody just stayed there going a foot a minute. The Fast Pass lane, you just walk past all the losers in the regular lane. You just kind of smile at them. And then when you're in that slow line and you look at people in the Fast Pass lane, you're just super jealous and angry. So uh, I think I think you can actually pay extra money and get a Fast Pass so you don't even have to get the tickets. You're just always going in the Fast Pass lane. Uh, that is worth it. I don't care how much money it costs. Uh, the problem is there is no fast pass to life. And we spend a lot of time in our, in our short lives waiting. Here's just a couple of statistics, and this is on average, but on average, you will spend a 43 days of your life waiting on hold, with, with waiting for someone to answer. That, that's super <laughs> depressing to hear. You'll spend six months of your life on average awaiting at, 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 a, at a stoplight. That, that's incredible. Um, and then you'll spend two years of your life waiting in lines of some sort, probably at, at, at Disney. I, I hate to wait. The other night, um, our, our internet went out. And so I went over to the modem and, you know, it's got the little dots and you can tell what's going on. It's just flashing and you need all the solid ones, at least on ours. And I tell you, it's, a, it's, it's silly that I did this, but I just sat there right in front of it and just stared at it and just angry. 
angry until it came back on and I could use the internet. I saw a report this last week that some researchers in Australia had broken the speed record for the internet. They've come up with some new technology, it's not available yet, uh, that you can download 1,000 high definition movies at the same time in less than a second. So when that comes out, sign me up because I, I hate waiting. We hate waiting because it feels to us like a waste of time. It's that gap between what we're doing and what we want to do, and we're not there yet, and it feels like we're wasting our lives and wasting our time. We're going to get an alternative perspective to that today from the life of Joseph and from Scripture, and I think we'll come to see that waiting's not a waste of time. The waiting can actually be a gift. We're in the fourth week of a series called uh, You'll Get Through This, and we stole the name from Max Licato's book, You'll Get Through This, which is our big read, and many of you are digging into that and reading it. It's not too late. We've got book clubs and the whole deal, so I encourage you to, to read along with us. And let's just do a quick review. Uh, Joseph, great-grandson of Abraham and Sarah, the family of promise that would bring the Messiah, so we're kind of following their journeys through the Old Testament. He's the 11th out of 12 sons, and yet he's the favorite. He's got the special coat. The brothers hate him. He takes some lunch one day uh, on an errand for his father. Uh, they strip him down, throw him in a pit, and they're going to leave him for dead, basically. That's how much they hate this kid. He's, he's a spoiled brat. But they decide to make a buck off of him. Some slave traders come by. They sell him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. He gets sold into uh, Potiphar's house, and Potiphar uh, is head of captain of the guard for the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. Joseph works his way up until he's running the house. Uh, he's, he's gone over these years from a young punk and a spoiled brat to a man of God and a man of character and a man of integrity. God's working that in him. And then uh, he gets cornered by Mrs. Potiphar who it's basically a sexual assault, and we talked about that last week. And he, he ran from her. He wanted nothing to do with it, even though it probably would have been his personal benefit to give in. Uh, but he knew God was there, and God was with him, and God was watching. So he ran. He gets framed for it anyway. Potiphar has no choice but to send him uh, to prison. And so we're following the story of this kid, uh, 17 years old, spoiled brat, into the pit, into shackles, into slavery, down to Egypt, uh, about 10 years in Potiphar's house, works his way up. He's kind of back into the penthouse and then back into prison. It's just like this. But the whole way, Joseph knows the Lord is with him. And that's a key foundational point to the story. God has not abandoned him. And this God has a redemptive presence and that God's this master junk artist taking all the evil and all the suffering that's coming Joseph's way. Not God's fault, but God takes it anyway and weaves it into Joseph's story to bring eventual good, to bring beauty, to train Joseph to be the type of man God created him to be. And he's growing up him up to be uh, the, the prime minister. So last week we left off our story with Joseph in prison, and then similar to what happened in Potiphar's house, Joseph's a man of character. Joseph starts to kind of work his way up, whatever that looked like in prison, to where he was the prisoner over all the other prisoners in the warden. Uh, trust him. That's where we're going to pick up the story this week, and Dan is going to read uh, our scripture for us. Take it away, Dan. All right, so kind of an odd story here. We have uh, two of the prisoners, are uh, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is like the head honcho. He's the most powerful person in the world, as best we know. He's ruling Egypt in, in the known world. So we have two of his kind of cabinet, if you will, 
Uh, and it, it's the cupbearer who's probably in charge of the wine and, and all of that, and then his baker who is in charge of the bread. So they're in prison. We don't know what they've done and why they're there, but we can, we can assume that Pharaoh doesn't suffer fools. Let's just put it that way. So both of them on the same night have dreams, but they're different dreams. And they wake up and Joseph notes that they're sad. And he's like, why are you sad? And they're like, we had these dreams and we have no one to interpret them, which is a weird phrase for us. We're not from the ancient Near East. Back then, dreams were super, super important. They believed that they had a divine quality. They had a meaning to them. And you could basically, if you went to university or college, major in dream interpretation. There was entire books. It was a whole trade to be a dream interpreter. And Pharaoh had plenty of these folks around. Uh, but not in prison. So you can see what's happening. They had these dreams. They sensed they were significant dreams, and yet in prison, there's no dream interpreters. Joseph's response is really interesting. Joseph's like, well, interpreting dreams, that's God's business. And then he says, tell me your dream. And what he's saying there is, I'm here. I'm a follower and a God fear. My God, that's his business to interpret dreams. Tell me your dream. I can't interpret it, but I work for him. And through him, I'll tell you what it means. So even in prison, even after everything, being falsely accused and falsely imprisoned, Joseph's still faithfully following Yahweh and knowing that he's right there with him and that he's working on Yahweh's behalf. So the, the baker and the cupbearer probably say that, well, that's really weird, but we don't have any other options. So the cupbearer goes first and he says, well, in my dream, there's these three vines and there's the cup and I squeeze the, the wine into the cup and I handed it to Pharaoh and that's, that's all I got. And Joseph's like, ah, oh, that's easy. Uh, the three vines mean three days, and in three days you'll be card, called up, and you'll be exonerated, and you'll be back in your position as cupbearer. And he's like, sweet, that's so awesome. Thanks, Joe. And uh, Joseph's like, hey, but when you do, know that I've been falsely in prison, and, and I was even taken from my home uh, unjustly and, and put into slavery. Can you remember me? And the cupbearer goes, you're my guy. You're my guy, Joe. I'll remember you, I promise. So then the baker goes, well, that one, well, let me tell you my dream now. And the baker's dream is different. He said, on my head, I'm carrying uh, three loaves of bread, and then basically birds start eating the bread. <laughs> and Joseph's like, oh, boy. He's like, well, I got bad news and bad news. Which do you want first? And so he basically tells the baker, um, it's like the opposite of the cupbearer. In three days, you'll be called up and you will not be exonerated. You'll be grotesquely killed and then birds will eat your flesh. It's kind of gross, but that's how Joseph <laughs> interprets the dream. That's, that's terrible to hear. And we don't know what the chief baker did uh, to deserve this. Um, maybe uh, Pharaoh was going on a low-carb diet. That's not funny. Um, Maybe he tried to assassinate him or something like that. That's, that's probably truthful. Or Pharaoh's going gluten-free. Not, not funny. All right, three days later, Joseph is proven correct. And so what happens to the cupbearer proves true. Sadly, what happens to the baker proves true. But the last line of the chapter that Dan read says a key point, that the cupbearer forgot Joseph. So then we, we go to the beginning of the next chapter, and let me fill you in a little bit, and then I'll read, uh, I'll go to the next scene. The, the first line of the next chapter is two years later. Whew. <laughs> two years later. Pharaoh wakes up, and Pharaoh has two dreams. 
And so Pharaoh's, you know, his dreams are, they're weird too. There's seven skinny cows that eat seven fat cows and there's seven uh, grain stalks that are like shriveled and dying that eat uh, seven grain stalks that are flourishing. That's basically the dream. So he's Pharaoh, he gets whatever he wants. He's like, he brings his, his cadre of dream interpreters like, okay, this is my dream. Tell me what's up, and it's nada. It's silence. It's crickets. Nobody knows what the dreams are. They're they're combing through the books, and there's nothing there. These are weird dreams. And then the cupbearer, who's just chilling over to the side, remembers Joseph two years later, and he says, "Pharaoh, I got a guy. I got a guy." And so. Finally, Joseph hears what he's been waiting two years to hear. Hey, is the Hebrew here? And he gets called up and ushered into the presence of, of Pharaoh. And let me, let me continue reading. If you're following along at home, we're in Genesis 41. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21 and then 28 through 40. So this is, try to, as we read these in these narrative scenes, just trying to kind of close your eyes and be in these scenes. Be in Joseph's skin. Imagine everything he's went through, and now finally he's in front of the most powerful person in the world. What is God up to? What is God doing with Joseph's life? So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Watch what Joseph says. Oh, I can't do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile and out of the river came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. (laughs) Super weird. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before (laughs) that I woke up. Disturbing. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that, it, that the matter has been firmly decided by God and that God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man to put in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of the good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. The food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. This plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? What's happening? One in whom is the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you. There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be put in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. What? This is crazy. Imagine being Joseph in everything we walked with this, this man through. And then in two years after he's been told to cut barely, remember, he's just sitting there rotting away in prison for something he didn't do. And finally he gets the call 
And in a moment, I don't think there's any shower. I don't think there's a change of clothes. He's ushered in front of Pharaoh who had these disturbing dreams about the grain and then these, these ugly cows eating the fat cows. Whoa. But Joseph, because he knew the Lord was with him and he was anchored to that. That was his identity. He didn't miss a beat. And Pharaoh tried to give him a, a chance to glorify himself. I would have been prone to be like, yeah, I'm your guy. I can interpret that. He didn't for a second. What he did in prison with hardly anybody watching, he did in front of the whole court of Pharaoh. He said, I can't do it, but my God can. I work for him. That's where Pharaoh said he saw the spirit of God in this young man. He didn't want glory for himself. He wanted glory for his God. And then he told Pharaoh what was going to happen, that there was going to be seven years of abundance, seven years of the stock market up and to the right and people making loads of money and cash and the economy exploding and, and low unemployment. It's the best economy ever for seven years. And then seven years of the Great, Great Depression. And so he said, Pharaoh, you know it's coming. And what goes on in Egypt goes on in the world because you steer the economy for the world. So here's what I advise. And this is a crucial thing. Joseph went from just interpreting his dream, that's the only thing Pharaoh had asked him to do, to now advising Pharaoh. That's risky. But Joseph knew where his identity was. And he took the step of faith because it was the right thing to do to tell Pharaoh uh, some wise and discerning advice. So Pharaoh, he looks around after Joseph said, who, who do you have that could do this? And he's like, I'm just surrounded by all these bums here in my court. I got, I got nobody. You seem really smart. You look a little dirty. We got to clean you up a little bit, but you look really smart. The story goes on, if you keep reading in chapter 41, where immediately Joseph is given Pharaoh's signet ring. This means that Joseph has the same authority as Pharaoh. Only Pharaoh is above him. And Joseph gets the Mercedes Benz and the new house and the bank account and the great food and the wine. Joseph ends up getting married and having children. And at age 30, Joseph is on top of the world. I mean, Joseph's endured broken promises and betrayals and abuse and stuck in pits and slavery and abduction and sexual assault and false imprisonment, everything this guy's gone through, it didn't break him. And he kept on putting it in God's hands, knowing that in God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good and it's being borne out. Remember our verse from Proverbs, a righteous man falls seven times, but always rises again. The, the rising phoenix had nothing on Joseph. This is the greatest comeback story of all time. But embedded in the story is this crucial truth. And it's the idea of the significance and the necessity of waiting. And I hate waiting, but waiting was a hallmark of Joseph's life and story. We simply can't ignore it. It's, it's disarming because we'll, we'll, we can sit down and read the 13 chapters of Joseph's story, chapter 37 through 50, and we can be done in under an hour. And it can seem like it all went really, really quickly, but this is a long time. This is a span from when he got put in the pit all the way up to present where we are in the story, and we still have two weeks left here. It's about 13 years. So let's slow that down and let's think about it a little bit. Joseph thrown in the pit. He was probably in there for days. He was probably dying slowly of dehydration, calling out to his brothers who were mocking and laughing. him. And then he's rudely pulled out and, and poked and prodded and then sold into slavery where we, we read the Psalm last week. He shackled at the neck and shackled at the feet and shackled with his hands and marches 730 miles to Egypt. That's covered in like one line in the story. And he went down to Egypt. Imagine that journey for this kid. And then he's on the slave market and day after day, week after week, oh, people yelling at him and looking at him and, and bidding for him. And finally, Potiphar buys him. 
as his slave. He starts in the field, and in a couple of lines, Joseph's over the house, but in reality, it took him 10 years. 10 years of abuse, 10 years of being yelled at, 10 years of sleeping out in the cold, 10 years of learning Egyptian. That's not easy. And then finally, God's faithfulness, he rises up. And then this, this false accusation and this frame job, and then he ends up in prison. And then imagine that scene. I mean, Joseph's hubit, and he, cupbearer, yes, God's gonna get me out. And he starts to tell his friends, I'm getting early release, I'm getting early release. And he packs up his bags, and you picture him sitting there in a cell just waiting, just waiting two years, two more years of prison food, two more years of wondering if God had bailed, but trusting that God would never bail, that God would use all things for good. Uh, 13 years, and God used every instance to weave it into Joseph's story like a master junk artist and make Joseph the man he was created to be. The man who we see in this scene is gonna become prime minister. We don't just see this in Joseph's life, we see this throughout scripture. It's a theme. Joseph was an expert at waiting, so was almost every other person God chose to use in scripture. Abraham and Sarah, they waited all that time for having, having a son that would carry on the promise. Noah and Moses, 40 years in the desert as a shepherd. David, an anointed king, 15 years waiting, being chased by Saul in the desert. Jeremiah and all the prophets waiting all that time for the promised one. And then between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have hundreds of years of silence. And you open up the pages of the New Testament, everybody's collectively waiting for the one who is to come. And we see old Simeon and Anne at the temple when baby Jesus finally comes and they're like, yes, they've been waiting their entire lives. We've got Jesus' stories of healing. We've got the man by the pool that waited decades and the bleeding woman who was unhealthy for all those years waiting for Jesus. The disciples, what did Jesus tell them to do after he was sent? He said, wait for the spirit to come. Paul has this encounter on the road to Damascus. It's 10 years of making tents before he does anything. The church waits for the return of Jesus right now. We, you could refer to followers of Jesus in the church as the people who wait. Even creation, Romans says, is waiting in eager expectation for redemption. In scripture, there is no fast pass. There is no fast pass. Max, in our big read, and, and again, I hope you jump in if you haven't been reading. He, he's such a fantastic author. This will give you a little taste of it. But he says it like this. We don't like to wait. We are the giddy-up generation. We weave through traffic looking for the faster lane. We frown at the person who takes 11 items into the 10-item express checkout. We drum our fingers while the song downloads or the microwave heats our coffee. Come on, come on. We want six-pack abs in 10 minutes and minute rice in 30 seconds. We do not like to wait. Not on the doctor, the traffic, or the pizza. Not on God. Take a moment and look around you. Do you realize where we sit? This planet is God's waiting room. Isn't that a great line? This planet is God's waiting room. The young couple in the corner waiting to get pregnant. The fellow with the briefcase, he has resumes all over the country waiting on work. The elderly woman with a cane, a widow been waiting for a year for one tearless day, waiting, waiting on God to give, help, heal, waiting on God to come. We indwell the land betwixt prayer offered and prayer answered, the land of waiting. And if anyone knew the furniture of God's waiting room, Joseph did. In life, waiting is our primary posture. We spend most of our lives waiting. Joseph spent 
the vast majority of his life in our story up to the present moment, waiting and yet look at what God did. In, uh, in the Houston airport, they were getting complaints that people were waiting too long at the luggage carousel for their luggage to come. So they were trying to, to move towards those complaints and they cut it down to an eight minute wait, which is the national average. Still, they kept on getting complaints. And then finally, someone had this brilliant yet crazy idea. And the idea was to take people and drop them off at the gate farthest away from the luggage carousel. So they had a, a walk from their gate to the luggage carousel that was four times longer than it was before. But when they got to the luggage carousel, they had to basically wait a minute for their luggage. The complaints disappeared. <laughs> we, we hate waiting so much, we would rather walk four times the distance so we don't have to sit there and wait. Waiting is a huge theme in scripture. When you begin to think through it and look at the lives of the people and look for the words, it's everywhere. There's not one word, there's a ton of different words in the Hebrew and the Greek for this concept of waiting that we uh, use one word basically for in our English language. Also, this is interesting, the words for wait and hope are basically the same words and they're interchanged all the time. Picture a rope that's just wrapped together. Those two words are wrapped together. To, to wait is to hope and to hope is to wait. I define waiting as hoping in something or someone. And in scripture, you're almost always waiting on the Lord. There'll be a, 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 a collection of scriptures that come up behind the phrase, wait on the Lord. This is just a small sampling of the instances in scripture we're commanded to wait on the Lord. And we have to be commanded because we hate to wait. This is one instance. I love these verses. <clears throat> Maybe sometime this week in the morning or the evening, you can reflect on this passage from Psalm 130. And we've highlighted the number of times that it references in the Hebrew language, this concept of waiting. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption, for he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins." This fusion idea of waiting and hope is carried into our English language. The word uh, wait in the English comes from the old English word for watch or watchman. And that's what the psalmist is saying. That's just our perpetual posture as the people who wait. The, the watchman that all night is just waiting for the first crack of dawn, that's our posture. And here's how I like to say it. We think that, that waiting is wasted time. It's not wasted time. Waiting biblically, from a biblical perspective, is not wasted time, it's sacred space. It's sacred space. How is it sacred space? Well, while we wait, God is at work uh, in us. And we see this on, on full display in the life of Joseph. Uh, most of Joseph's life was spent waiting, but was God doing work in Joseph? Yes, we spent all last week talking about that God uses our training and our trials and being in the pit and being in the prison to form us into the type of people he wants us to be. He doesn't cause it, but he uses the suffering and the evil that are in the world and he weaves it into our stories for good. While we wait, God is at work in us. That's why waiting is not wasted time. It's, it's sacred space. When I'm in a waiting room uh, for the doctor, and, and oftentimes that's an angst-ridden experience, right? You're waiting for tests and you're, you're in pain and, and, or you're waiting to hear news about somebody that you love. 
but oftentimes I just look around the waiting room and typical waiting rooms have like really peaceful pictures of like flowing mountain streams or like really uh, calming phrases. And I just kind of look around and it does it, its work. When we're in God's waiting room and we spend most of our lives there, Max would say this whole world really is God's waiting room. If we were to look around God's waiting room, I think we would see words of encouragement. And I think this is, th- these are some of the words of encouragement we see. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture from the prophet Isaiah. You may be familiar with it, but watch what he's saying. Watch what Isaiah is saying. Does he think that waiting is wasted time? Isaiah writes, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and he strengthens the powerless. Here we go. Even youth will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who what? But those who wait on the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we think that we're at the end of the rope, when we think that we're in the pit like Joseph or we're in chains on the way to Egypt or we're unjustly thrown into prison, when we're in the waiting room, we think it's a waste of time. Isaiah's saying, it's not a waste of time. It's sacred space because God's using that time of waiting to work in us. Isaiah said, this is, this is the formula. When we wait on the Lord, we are transformed. We are strengthened to become the people God created us to be. That is on full display in the life of Joseph. As we wait, and think about the last time you waited. Maybe you're waiting for news from someone or about something and you're anxious about it. Um, or you're just stuck in traffic, or you're stuck in a line at Disney, or whatever it is. It could be innocent waiting, it could be angsty waiting, but think about the last time you waited and what was happening in your body. But think about the positives. When we wait, we're forced to look outside of ourselves for help. When we wait, we become much more aware of the redemptive presence of God that's always there with us that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that dogs our every step. As we wait, we become aware that I'm not in control and you're not in control, and that's a really good thing. As we wait, we become aware that God is this master junk artist, that God is actively involved working in our lives to take the things that are horrible and the suffering and the evil that he's working to finally overcome, that God can take those things and say, huh, what could this become? And he weaves it into our lives that he works it into our lives to make us more good and beautiful and true. Are you in the waiting room today? Probably in some regard. If not, you will be really soon. And even this week, think of the next moment that you're waiting and the blood pressure rises, at least it does for me, and you get frustrated and you get impatient. Be aware of that. And maybe don't instantaneously think of it as a curse and think about it as wasted time, try this on for size. Think of it as sacred space. Say, huh, God, what are you gonna do in and through me through this period of waiting? We we often, when we're, we're stuck in the pit or the prison or on our way to Egypt or we're dealing with something really hard, we wanna ask God the why questions. And those are really important and ask them. 
But I'm just telling you, God doesn't answer the why questions very often, at least not right now, maybe one day. But God does answer the what questions. So maybe asking less why questions and asking what questions. God, what, what are you doing? What are you doing in and through me? What are you doing with this? How are you gonna take these things and, and make it more beautiful? Instead of resisting and pushing away the waiting, maybe we follow in the pathway of the faithful saints like Joseph and we embrace it. And we say, okay, God, what are you gonna do in and through me? One of the biggest misnomers of waiting is that when we wait, that we're doing it passively. That's not biblical waiting at all. We didn't see that at all in the life of Joseph. Joseph spent most of his story thus far waiting in a pit on the way to Egypt, in Potiphar's house, in prison. He was waiting for many, many years. Out of the 13 years, most of it was spent waiting. But was he idle? No, he wasn't idle. In those periods of waiting, Joseph was living with a constant awareness of the redemptive presence of God and living in confident expectation that this God would come in, eventually pull him through this and make all things right. That's how we're meant to wait, not passively, but actively. We saw this in the story last week of Anthony Ray Hinton. If you missed last week's sermon or you don't know a story, go back and watch the sermon or read his book, The Sun Does Shine. It's such a fantastic story. And I was reading some, uh, watching some interviews with him and one of them said, hey, Anthony, um, what would you like to ask God? If you could just ask God any question right now. And he kind of smiles and laughs and he's like, I'd ask God, why did it take so long? <laughs> and that's a great question. He's on death row for 30 years for something he didn't do. God, I knew you'd get me through it, but why did you take so long? And Anthony, but why is there for 30 years, right? He saw himself as the chaplain. He started book clubs for KKK members. He was actively living in constant expectation that God was gonna deliver him and get him through and prepare him for what is next. And that's on full display in his life, how God's using his story all around the globe uh, to make things right. Anthony's question, how long will this take, lines up perfectly with one of the ancient prayers that we see throughout all of scripture. The psalmist, you see it again and again. You see it on the lips of the prophets. You see it on the lips of this chorus of martyrs in the book of Revelation. I think it's Revelation 6. And it's such a simple prayer. And it's, how long, Lord? How long? And I don't think it's complaining. I don't think it's whining. I think it's a prayer of hope and a prayer of waiting and a prayer of expectation that God will come, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and one day make all things right. And until then, we pray and we yearn and we live in expectation. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, we wait on you. Let me pray. God, thanks for your goodness and your grace that, that opens our minds and our hearts to take something like waiting that I God, disdain, I hate waiting. My blood pressure rises every time I have to wait, but that's just part of my brokenness. And by your grace and through, through uh, the eye-opening presence of your spirit in our lives, we're able to see something like waiting differently. We're able to maybe not see it as wasted time, but we begin to see it as, as you positioned in scripture, sacred space. It's space for us to stop and turn outward and recognize that you are very much with us and you're redeeming and making all things new and we transfer our trust from ourselves in a time of waiting onto you. And we say, how long, Lord? We say, come, we need you. And our, our focus is on what you're doing and not what we're doing. And we see that in Joseph's life. May that be true of us. God, this week, we'll have many opportunities to practice this. Even today, God, 
when we're in a position of waiting and frustration, we're not getting our way, it's not going as quick as we want, we want it this way or that way, may we just settle into that and take a deep breath and know that you're there and present with us and that you're at work in us even while we wait. That's such a miraculous, encouraging truth, God. May we claim it, may it enter us, God, and may it transform how we see you, how we see our uh, others, and how we see ourselves for your glory, God. We love you and we praise you. Uh, and all God's people said, amen.